Hello, my geeselings. I'm with uh, geeseling number one pins right now as I sit here recording the introduction to episode 36, at least I believe it's 36, with my friend and teacher, Justin Clark Doan. This is the third episode we've done. I think he was on episode seven and also another episode with uh, David Albert, both of which were great uh, because Justin's extremely, extremely knowledgeable and the fluidity with which he talks about all sorts of really complicated philosophical questions is mind-blowing to me. And every time I talk to him, I just think, well, shit, I'm never going to be able to do this. But anyway, it's really inspiring for me to talk to him. And also, I always learn a ton. In this episode, we talked pretty much exclusively about the philosophy of math, and in particular, how to answer the question, what is mathematics? Because it's a very big, loaded question, and there are lots of different ways that it can be answered. In particular, I think the episode was really geared toward or around a course that he just taught at Columbia University with Heim Gaffin, another Robinson's podcast veteran. He's been on episode 1, 11, 21, and 31 thus far. So Heim is a mathematician, a philosopher, a probability theorist. And you'll hear a bit about how he answers the question, what is mathematics? But we also did an episode exclusively on what is mathematics. I'm not sure at the moment if it is episode 11 or 21. So I'm going to very quickly... Uh, figure that out right now. It is episode 21, What is Mathematics? So if you want to hear from Haim himself, just listen to episode 21. But anyway, so Justin and I talk about what is mathematics. And some of the questions in particular, or the more particular questions we get into, are whether or not ancient and contemporary mathematics are the same subject, what the point is of mathematical proof, uh, we talk about the four-color problem and whether or not humans will eventually be replaced by artificially intelligent mathematicians. We talk about um, skepticism and classical logic. We talk about whether or not mathematics has the capacity to explain. And explanation is itself a topic in philosophy that I don't really know that much about. We talk about calculus and why it was important to rigorize it as opposed to just leaving it somewhat intuitively uh, defined or developed as it was done by Newton and Leibniz. Uh, then we also talk about mathematical knowledge and in particular the Benassaraf field problem. And then we finish by talking about Zeno's paradoxes, which I have a great love for. And I also just lied because that's not what we finish with. We actually finish with uh, five minutes or so on Indian metaphysics or Indian philosophy more generally, because unbeknownst to me, that was what got Justin into philosophy in the first place, or at least it was his first interest and still informs his views. But unfortunately, we don't uh, get to go into much depth there because I had already kept Justin for about two hours and he had to go. But I think in future conversations, it's something we're going to discuss much, much more deeply. Anyway, as you can tell probably from this introduction, it was a very intense episode. 
another great one. Uh, I'm so grateful to Justin for uh, really humoring me and being part of this, but he seems to enjoy having the conversation. So all the better. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did and he purportedly did and as much as Pins enjoyed sitting in my lap for most of it. And I will leave it at that. So last time we were together, or last time we did a podcast, it was with uh, David Albert. And I tried to start off by talking about ice cream, but I think he wanted to just get straight down to physics, which is okay. But have you eaten any interesting ice cream lately at all? Uh, not interesting. I've eaten a lot of ice cream. Uh, last night I had a bunch of, uh, what's the one with the three different colors? And then I put chocolate chips on it. Uh, Neapolitan. Yeah, yeah. So I, I ate a large quantity of one of the, you know, the things of that. Okay. Uh, just what brand? What? What brand? Um, gosh, the, it's like, what's like the main brand? It's like, uh, <laughs> uh, Edie's uh, dryer, Briars. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Edie's is pretty good. Uh, but yeah. so last time I think we talked about Bluebell a bit, but have you heard of salt and straw? I don't think so. So salt <laughs> and straw is Portland based, but I think they've got, uh, sort of the the gourmet ice cream down pat, like like they make some yeah. of the best ice creams, and they have all sorts of crazy flavors. And there's one right by me in Stanford, so they have specialty flavors every month. And in the past, like two weeks, I've had a pear and blue cheese flavored ice cream. And do you like blue cheese? Uh, n- no, I don't. I don't. No, I, don't I really, so. I really don't either. So yeah, I didn't okay. I didn't particularly like that one. Uh but then there mm-hmm. was a roasted turkey and cranberry sauce ice cream. <laughs> and that one was uh I think they wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal, but it was actually a phenomenal ice cream. I was apprehensive. Can... You can see yeah. it, yeah. I was apprehensive at first because I thought it was gonna be like pulled turkey breast or something, but it was actually turkey bacon. And I don't know if you've had like those bacon chocolate bars, but they they're pretty good. Okay. No, okay. Um, I haven't. Yeah. Okay. And then the last one I wanted to tell you about for show and tell was I had right. one today. It was from it was from Halloween, uh, but it was called Creepy Crawly Critters, and it had chocolate covered crickets and toasted mealworms in it. You mean like real ones? Yeah, like real ones. <laughs> I know. Okay. I was I don't feeling know I, really brave for that one. Yeah, that's impressive. I don't know if I would be up for that, but but that's okay. That's amazing. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you for listening to my show and tell. Thank you. Uh, but now for more philosophical things. Right. So Haim and I already did a podcast on what is mathematics, which is sort of what I I hoped you and I would talk about. And the way he answers this question, which you know, is somewhat like the following. It's uh, mathematics is what mathematicians do. 
Uh-huh. And that doesn't seem particularly illuminating, but when you get like deeper into it, it it's kind of it can be sociologically or historically interesting because it mm-hmm. I, I mean it allows for hypotheses or theses like the one he has that uh there's no phlogiston phlogist I always pronounce it wrong. I want to say phlogiston, but I know it's phlogiston. There's no phlogiston in mathematics and it's the only science, natural science without full scale revolutions. But mm-hmm. I think you view and I, I see this as a problematic account of what mathematics is, because it doesn't seem to answer certain questions that we find really important. But just right off the bat, do you think of historical mathematics as being fundamentally the same discipline as what's being done today? Because if that's not the case, then there's already a problem with the thesis. Yeah, I mean, um, so there's a sense in which I'm not sure I disagree with him, believe it or not, uh, about, or, or what you're attributing to him. I, I disagree with some of it, but, but I'm not sure. So, so on the question of, first of all, like whether math today or, you know, starting in the 19th century, uh, with, you know, sort of it's axiom, uh, it's axiomization and the kind of approach to proof and standards of rigor that, were established in the 20th century, whether that's the same discipline as, for example, the Greeks, uh, much less, you know, the Babylonians or the Islamic world um, in the Middle Ages or the Mayans or um, the Egyptians um, or or indeed medieval Europe. Um, that strikes me as, you know, a question of just how to kind of use the word. So, I don't think there's some deep question in the vicinity of is what, you know, um, is what um, uh, Euclid was doing the same thing as what, what, um, uh, uh, um, Bill Thurston was doing, you know, I don't, um, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's a deep, question there, you know, under some interpretations of the term mathematics, sure, it will turn out that we were doing the same thing. Under others, it won't. Um, And the better, the more it seems to be productive discussion is just to be explicit about what are the similarities and differences between what some people call math, uh, or what is typically called math and say history of math book, um, mm-hmm. in different periods and, and what we call math today. And, you know, there are striking differences. Uh, th- there are differences, um, you know, in that for most of recorded history, proof was not central to math in the sense mm-hmm. that we think of proof today. Right. I, when, you mentioned that, like, Chinese, I think some Chinese mathematics right. textbook, they just, they'll just give problems and solutions and they don't even really consider giving anything like a proof. Maybe there's like a little justification. Right. There's, you know, there's a sort of algorithm and there's some discussion, some commentary on the algorithm. Um, But the math was very advanced. So it's not a, it's not a question of advanced or not. It's a question of priorities. Do you care about proof or not? And I think it's an interesting question 
why the Greeks decided to care about proof and why we decided to follow them, you know, after the Renaissance um, to pick up that, that strand. But even, even if you just look at the, the part of history that, you know, you might call like the Greek tradition of math that we're part of where, where proof takes a central place. It's a very hodgepodge um, history. It's, it's not at all. I mean, it's, you know, I don't think it's helpful to just label it all math. It's like, sure, it's all fine. Call it all math. I don't care. But, but there's dramatic differences in standards of rigor in the conceptions of what you're talking about. You know, are you talking about literal constructions on, Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, with compass, uh, or are you talking about, um, uh, abstract objects? And if you're talking about abstract objects, um, you know, what, what are their nature, for example, what, what would the numbers be? And of course the, the Greeks famously had heretical views about this, given their, uh, worries about incommensurability and stuff. So, you know, is geometry and arithmetic, are they somehow you know, the same subject in two different guises or not, all these sorts of things. So, um, so on the question of is, has, you know, it, are all the different things we call math and a history of math book really math? I think that's just a question of how to talk. There are dramatic differences though, um, however you talk and it's useful to study those. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Heim, I, I feel like I'm I'm quoting him. I don't want this to be like I'm a Heim surrogate, and then you're having to to like put down the straw man that I uh, embody. But he yeah. likes to say that mathematics is the art of tinkering. That's one thing that he says, and that what mathematics is, other than it being what mathematicians do, is that it's about organizing information. And so he will say, I think he would disagree with you and say, no, there is something fundamentally similar and important uh, to uh, what the Egyptians did, what the Greeks did, uh, and what we do today. And it's we're organizing information in some sort of way. And that's what makes them all mathematics. Yeah, I mean, my, my worry with that is is not that it's false as a necessary condition it's that it's so general and vague that it's hard for me to see how that could distinguish math from any subject i mean mm -hmm. what intellectual subject doesn't involve organizing information and tinkering theories mm -hmm. um so so i would just need to hear a lot more detail and much more meat on the bone to see how that how that sort of says anything controversial and so the ways, some of the ways in which they differ that you think are, are really important are, uh, this is an example you used that Eudoxus's proportions might not be what we had in mind when we're talking about the real numbers or uh, when they use protractors and rulers uh, 2000 years ago, whereas now we're using not that, but we're using um, automated theorem provers and complex models. And I mean, mm -hmm. they didn't use proof. I mean, that's obviously a blanket <laughs> statement uh, in the elements. They obviously, uh, Euclid obviously used proof, but there were like those Chinese mathematicians we talked about weren't using proof, but now proof is central to mathematics. So there are some things that are, that we certainly say it's not mathematics today if you don't have these things. Uh, but they didn't have them back then. So 
they're not doing our mathematics at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to be clear, like, you know, proof is obviously central to the elements and that's why, you know, it's been used for 2000 years as some kind of paradigm, but, but what counts as proof in the elements is not what counts as proof today. I mean, take the very first proposition about, you know, constructing an equilateral triangle. Um, you know, that just has a obvious hole in it from the standpoint of today, which is that the circles used to construct it intersect. Um, it, it, that would that would not be okay today. You can't just take that for granted. Um, it's clearly relying on intuition or the or the the, the um, diagram or something. Um, so, but right in other traditions, you don't even have something that bears a family resemblance to proof today. And um, it seems clear that the you know the explanation for that isn't that somehow like they weren't capable of coming up with proofs. It's that it it's a good question I think to ask why we want proof. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just want truth? You know, why don't you just want to know what's the case? Why do you want to put it in this sort of recondite language in this premise conclusion form that's hard to read that starts from highly abstract um, principles that most people will never acquaint themselves with? I mean, I think that's a good question. I'm not saying yeah. I'm not saying that rhetorically because I think it shouldn't be done. But um but anyway, so so yeah, just to be clear, the Greeks, the Greeks, unlike the Indians or the Chinese, did use something that we think of as proof, but it's not the same standard of rigor. Hmm. So, yeah. I mean, you've you've brought up and brought in. Uh, I feel like my dad used to correct me when I was a little kid. I would always say brought in, uh, but okay, you've you brought you've brought up uh, yeah. a, a good question, which is. I mean, what's the point of proof? Why proof? Was it the same then uh, as it is now? And I, you've given me a, a couple of competing answers. And one is uh, a proof is an argument that generates insight and understanding. And do you think that that holds generally or there, there are problems with that? I know I'm setting you up uh, to right. maybe go into the four color theorem a bit at some point well well no i mean so i mean right so i think down the line yeah so i think that um yeah in the in the class you know i i just pointed out that there have been two kind of ideas of proof or idealizations of the notion of proof uh that um historians have distinguished one is associated with like aristotle and leibniz and that has to do with kind of certifying an argument. Like, so on this conception, a proof is something that sort of guarantees the the validity of the argument. It doesn't guarantee the truth of the premises, of course, the, the, the truth of the axioms, but guarantees. On the other conception, though, a truth is more like what you get out of like Plato's Mino, where, you know, the slave boy comes to uh, see um, that, uh, I guess, what, what, what is the example? I guess he sees the length of the hypotenuse or, um, so I can't remember the, whether it's the Pythagorean theorem that's used or, or something else, but anyway, he, the, the, the argument is a kind of aha argument. It's like, oh, that has to be, um, that has to be the, the, the answer and you can see why. And the official, the official, reasoning in in the 
in in the Plato in in Plato's Mino, like any other of his dialogues, is a you know, it, it's a back and forth between two individuals, a sort of like here's a hypothesis, here's why that doesn't work, here's another hypothesis, and um, and uh, that's not a proof in the first sense. It's not like a sequence of symbols, each one of which is a premise or follows from the previous line by a rule of formal inference, the last line of which is the conclusion, but it 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 generates insight and understanding. So you have these two different, I think, conceptions. So that's kind of associated with, I don't know, Plato and then maybe Descartes. And, and it seems to me like um, part of what explains sociological differences in contemporary academic, I'll call it math, but it cross cuts, you know, disciplines in the sense that some of these people are in philosophy departments, some of them are in computer science departments, some of them are in math departments. Um, contemporary math is what's kind of more important or what should we be after the platonic proof or the, or the, you know, Leibnizian proof. And of course, ideally you want both. And so you might want a platonic proof, but then you want it backed up by a Leibnizian proof. And that's the idea that any, that's exactly the idea that here's what we mean by rigor. If you prove something in the platonic sense, there should be a Leibnizian proof backing it up such that the premises are something like the ZFC axioms and the, the argument can be completely carried out by a computer, you know, checked by a computer as first order valid. Um, but you know, that's sort of an article of faith that all, all platonic proofs could in principle be done that way. That is all the proofs that count as, you know, proofs in informal standard mathematics that people find illuminating and persuasive could in principle be, be, there's a surrogate proof in say first order ZFC that's mechanically checkable. That's like an Aristotelian Leibnizian proof. So the answer, sorry, the original question was, do I think all proofs are like that, um, that they generate insight and understanding? Certainly not all the things that, you know, get called proofs, including, for example, proofs that involve uh, computers, like the four color theorem, uh, are like that. But it does seem to me like most of sort of, uh, I don't know, core prestige math it, um, those are the kinds of arguments people like. People want intuitive, uh, illuminating arguments, and the more technical and kind of Leibnizian, the the less actually kind of impressive and enjoyable the mathematics, you know? Right, but there's an analog to the really brute force, complicated, not surveyable proofs uh, like those done by from axioms by a computer uh, in the core of mathematics that's being done today in that most of the, most of those proofs aren't uh, perfectly rigorous. And then once you rigorize them, uh, a mathematician can't read them because no, well, one, because nobody ever does them, but because they're, they would be essentially impenetrable and thousands of lines long for something very simple. Right. So maybe we should just, for purposes of people watching, distinguish two notions of rigor. So I was talking about standards of rigor and stuff. And the arguments are, you know, in an ordinary math journal, as far as I know, are, are perfectly rigorous generally by the standards of the mathematical practice, you know, the mathematical uh, 
community. They're not rigorous in another sense, which we have yet to distinguish, but I gestured at, which is they're not first order valid. And that is the notion that mathematical logicians study. It's the notion that every philosophy student learns when they take logic. It's the notion of valid that can be checked by a machine. And you're absolutely right. So what I was saying was, you know, ideally, we, you know, the, the, the sort of philosophy, computer science types want it to be the case that the final arbiter of validity is something you could check with a machine. So that means that every argument in a mathematics journal must have a surrogate that's mechanically checkable. But the mm -hmm. mechanically checkable arguments are not things anyone can comprehend. As you say, you know, they have to, way too many lines and they just look like incomprehensible computer code and certainly are not Mino type proofs, you know. Um, so, uh, so in that sense, underlying every argument in a math journal, if you think the final arbiter is formal rigor, like rigor in the sense of first order formal provability, in that sense, every mathematical argument is backed up by something that's not amino proof. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's interesting kind of epistemological questions of, of, of epistemological priority when you realize that. Like, um, why do we think that provability in first order ZFC is, um, is the final arbiter? Uh, and if anything, it seems like the arguments that will back that up will be informal amino arguments, you know? <laughs> um, it's not like because a computer told us so. Um, so, sorry, that's my phone. Um, uh, so, yeah, so sorry. The original, the original thread was that I guess it, you're just saying that um, you know the the things that fill up journals um, those generate insight and understanding. But if someone were to show that there's no surrogate in first order ZFC that's formally valid, that would invalidate the proof. And in fact, that's exactly what here. I mean, here's a very concrete case to illustrate that for the, the skeptics. You know, I mean, think about the, the, the proofs of the independence of the continuum hypothesis um, by Goodall and Cohen. Those concern formal provability. Those concern, mm -hmm. like, in order to talk about provability, you have to talk about an idealized object, idealized proofs and idealized, you know, systems that people use. Finite, you know, proofs, finite string symbols. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe before we talk about this, uh, you, yeah. you could just briefly say what what the continuum hypothesis is. And Sorry. Yeah. Sure. So the continuum hypothesis says that there's a bijection between every uncountable subset of the real numbers and all of them, or assuming what's typical, but by no means... Uh, everyone who thinks about this stuff agrees what's called the axiom of choice. It says the, the size of the real numbers, the cardinality of the real numbers is the next greatest after the size of the natural numbers. Okay. And so now, now channeling David, can you say that in normal guy English? <laughs> oh, well, yeah. So assuming the axiom of choice, which doesn't matter right, right now, it's just an axiom that was controversial at the turn of the 20th century, but now only kind of people who worry about foundations think very much about it. Um, famously, Cantor showed that in a, a reasonable sense of size, you can have different sizes of, in, in, of infinity. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, so, you know, this is surprising because for example, um, 
you know, you can pair the even numbers with the natural numbers. It turns out that you can pair the rational numbers with the natural numbers. You might just think infinity is never ending and they're all the same. They all bleed into this. Any infinite set is just the same. And, and Cantor showed that that's actually not true. And there's this very simple and beautiful argument known as the diagonal argument showing that the, the set of the real numbers, which includes irrational numbers that can't be written as fractions of integers, uh, um, uh, like root two or pi, um, th that set is in a well-defined sense bigger than these other sets. And the well-defined sense is you can't do that pairing. Uh, you can't do a bijection, a one-to-one -one pairing so that all the numbers are used up and get unique partners in both sets. Uh, and here's the next question. How much bigger, if they're bigger, uh, are is the set of real numbers and the set of natural numbers? Uh, assuming the axiom of choice, you know, um, the the continuum hypothesis says that it's the next size up. The 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 real num the set of real numbers is the, the next size up uh, from the set of the natural numbers. Um, but in the 30s or 40s, and then the 60s. It was shown that from standard axioms, and in fact, any axioms known as large cardinal axioms, which have been seriously considered, um, uh, if those axioms are consistent, then so is both the continuum hypothesis tacked onto those axioms, and so is the negation of the continuum hypothesis tacked onto those axioms. Meaning that from the standard axioms, if they're consistent, you can't prove or refute the continuum hypothesis. And, um, and, and as I say, again, not just standard axioms, actually, something quite a bit stronger than standard axioms. Um, uh, so, um, so the point is that the proof of that, in order to be able to prove something about provability and what you can establish or not, you have to idealize and you have to work with, form, with, with, with a formal notion of provability. Mm -hmm. So what's really shown is there is no formal proof in the, in the formal system of ZFC, Zermelo-Frankel set theory with the axiom of choice plus large cardinal axioms of the continuum hypothesis, a formal statement of the continuum hypothesis or its negation. Now, here's the point. Mm -hmm. When that was done, everyone took that to show, okay, well, I won't waste my time trying to prove the continuum hypothesis or its negation. Right. Informally prove it. That right. is prove it in the ordinary sense of proof that mathematicians follow. So, so mathematicians really trust the formal the formal mathematical it would seem that Yeah, it would seem that despite whatever rhetoric you might have, like, you know, that, that you might hear that formal provability is, is you know, ugly and has nothing to do with understanding and stuff, that might all be true, but it does seem like the buck stops there. If someone shows there is no formal proof in, say, first-order ZFC plus large cardinal axioms of the continuum hypothesis or its negation, if the axioms are consistent, then nobody's going to be looking for a proof in the ordinary sense of proof of that hypothesis. They will look for new axioms, for example. Um, mm -hmm. But that's not going to be, that's not going to be an ordinary mathematical activity. That'll be, you know, philosophy. <clears throat> yeah, I would, I would ask you about the search for new axioms, but um, I feel like that would take us pretty far afield from what is mathematics at the moment. Uh, even though I'm, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. But this might be a good time to, unless I'm making you talk too much with, with uh, explication of things, but this might be a good time to go into the four color, the four color problem.
and then more importantly, uh, the four color theorem. And I mean, there are a couple of interesting things about it. I mean, one, I know you like uh, talking about or thinking about the role of uh, computers in mathematics and whether or not they'll replace mathematicians, which I which I did talk to uh, Michael Harris about on the show uh, a while oh, ago. Oh, yeah, what did you say about that? Uh, I think he said that, well, we can, we can talk more about that once we talk about the four color problem, but mm-hmm. he talked about mathematics being a human activity of understanding. Uh, that's right. not, mm-hmm. that's not going anywhere. Uh, but then it also just raises questions about, uh, again, surveyability, surveyability in the same, in a similar mm-hmm. sense to the, uh, formal analog. But so what was the four color problem? Because I think it, it had been around for a very long time, right? It's not a new, it wasn't a new problem when it was solved. Uh, yeah, so... Um, I can look that up, actually. So I think I think it had been around something like 150 years. Uh, the four color theorem is actually not uh, something that I've thought much about, but um, okay. it's it's that every uh, planar map is four colorable, I think is the standard statement of the... So I, can, I can read the standard statement. Yeah, okay. uh, the four color theorem states that no more than four colors are required to color the regions of any map so that no two adjacent regions have the same color. So that's the theorem. And the right. problem yeah. is whether or not that was the case, whether yeah. or not you needed uh, four colors or whether yeah, you could do it with four colors. Right. And where adjacent doesn't just mean touching at a point. It means like having... Uh, like a, a border, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, right, so yeah, so I actually don't know the detailed history of this, um, but but I think you're right that I think it had been around for at least uh, 100 and maybe 50 years or something. Uh, when the famous... 1852, so you're you're okay. you're right on the money. Close. Well, not, well, I think the proof, though, was in the, what was it, set in the 70s? So I'm not quite Yeah, it was 76. Okay. Um, yeah, so again, you know, you should talk to historians about this. Uh, but, um, but, uh, but right, so there's this proof that involves, um, uh, that involves a, a significant step uh, where a computer checks a zillion cases. And also, according to the architects, the proof, my understanding is kind of does more than that and start strategizing. Um, and that part of the proof is not surveyable by a human being. Um, there's been enough checking of the argument, my understanding is, uh, there's been enough checking of the argument that no one is in doubt that it's valid at this point. In fact, if anything, it's probably been checked much more carefully and closely than most arguments in math that are interesting. Um, but you know, some people went so far in the 70s, uh, at least, and maybe later to say that's not a proof. I don't know what what nonverbal issue could be at stake there. The important thing that we can all agree to is that there's something that people didn't like about it. So you can yeah. just distinguish two questions. One is like, does, does the conclusion follow from the premises? And it really does seem to me like unless you just have skepticism about classical logic or something, which uh-huh. is another discussion and an interesting one. Um, yes, we have excellent reason to think so. Um, another question is, um, 
is that the kind of thing we should be striving for in math, just figuring out what follows from what? I mean, suppose that now we have automated um, uh, theorem provers, proof checkers, proof assistants, you know, you don't just want a bunch of phone books of, you know, if, if the axioms, then this, or if the finite subset of axioms needed in the proof, then this, and here's another one. And then, and that one looks interesting. Okay. So here's We put that in the interesting box, but you don't understand why any of it's true. Uh -huh. Um, I think this is the kind of, presumably though, I, I, um, I don't know. I, I take it. That's kind of what Michael Harris is getting at. Um, yeah, exactly. uh, yeah, exactly. that, that, you know, why do math? It's not to accumulate stacks of validities. It's to understand stuff. And it's under to understand relations between ideas or something. I mean, again, that would be a very general conception that wouldn't distinguish math from a lot of things either. But um, and and the four color theorem has been frustrating in that as far as I know, but again, you should ask a historian, there doesn't seem to be any prospect of coming up with a purely surveyable proof, a proof that doesn't involve, you know, checking zillions of cases and some other slightly fancier things uh, on the part of a computer. But that's, I'm not an expert on this topic. Okay. Uh, something that you said two minutes ago that had me curious is that there are reasons for being skeptical about classical logic mm -hmm. and, I'm wondering what, what the reasons are that you have in mind. Yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> the, to me, the most important question in the philosophy of logic is what is at stake? What is the dispute when people dispute whether classical logic, for example, is correct? Um, I'm going to bracket that for a second and um, pretend that that's a clear question or sorry, that has a clear, it's a clear, it, it's clear what's at stake. We can talk about what might be uh, in a minute, but um, but assuming you know what what it means to disagree with classical logic or something, I mean, there's lots of different kinds of reasons. So, um, right, like so, the law of the excluded middle or something. So something right. So you know, intuitionists have um, have uh, have objections based on cons constructive. Constructive concerns, concerns about the constructivity of uh, or constructability of, of, of uh, examples. A more radical concern is, you know, one stemming from paraconsistent logics where, um, uh, you know, you don't even accept things like disjunctive syllogism. That's the inference rule that says that um, if you know that P or Q and you know that not Q, then you can infer that P. Um, and paraconsistent logics, for those who haven't heard that term, is just their logics where it's logically possible that something is both true and false or a contradiction holds P and not P. Um, uh, that doesn't mean that something is both true and false. That's not part of paraconsistent logic. Logic doesn't tell you what's actually the case. It just tells you what's possible and has to be the case as a matter of logic alone. And what it's saying is that you can't rule out contradictions as a matter of logic alone. So, um, so there are, you know, there's lots of, I mean, uh, the, uh, you know, there, there have been lots of different logics proposed in some sense of proposed. There's something called quantum logic that von Neumann and uh, uh, Burkhoff, I think, uh, anyway, proposed that gives up on something called the distributive law. Um, 
their continuum valued logic. So there's just as a matter of sociology, there's all these different things that are called logics. And they're in some senses a dispute about which one is the right one among some people. Um, and a good question is what in the hell that means. Um, but, but pretending for the sake of argument that we know, the, some of the objections are things like, you know, yeah, against law of the excluded middle, against uh, disjunctive syllogism and, and so forth. Different rules of inference that are classically valid, valid in ordinary math but they're not valid in some of these other logics. Okay, cool. That, that uh, satiated or satisfied my curiosity, but okay. Back to the four color theorem, or maybe a little bit mm -hmm. before the four color theorem, we talked about the uh, two sort of purposes maybe, mm -hmm. or two purposes of proof. So generating insight and understanding on the one hand, and then on the other, something that conclusively mm -hmm. establishes its conclusion. And uh, Ronnie Rochvelpula, your yeah. your student, yeah. uh, gave me a question for you that I I don't totally understand because I'm not up on these debates. But it relates to the first branch about generating insight and understanding. Okay. And my understanding is that there are currently a lot of debates going on about what explanation is. And Ronnie was wondering how you feel about mathematical explanation mm -hmm. in particular. And I'm wondering uh, how a proof relates to that. I mean, in what ways does mathematics explain or can it be explanatory? Yeah, good. I mean, um, so <clears throat> again, like I, I, you know, I, I want to avoid verbal questions about the meaning of the word explanation. Um, uh, there are debates about what counts as an explanation in philosophy of science. Um, again, I think the most productive way to approach those debates is kind of like, what should it mean? Um, what are we after? Um, not a question of natural language semantics about how people use the word explanation. Um, now, our, our very own colleague, I guess no longer your colleague because you left. Um, but, uh, uh, but anyway, um, our, our, co our colleague, Philip Kitcher had, ha you know, has a very influential view of explanation, which, which, um, applies directly to mathematical case. It wouldn't distinguish between causal, causal cases where you're explaining why the billiard ball, um, uh, went this way rather than that way versus, uh, mathematical cases. Um, and it's, you know, probably going to butcher Philip's view here because it's been a while since I've, I've read his stuff on this, but, um, you know, I think, I think basically he, he regards an explanation as a set of sentences that imply the thing you want explained that's unifying and simplifying and, um, uh, and there's no reason you can't have that in, in the mathematical case or the philosophical case or the historical case or, I mean, there's nothing special about science, empirical or physical science, and when it comes to that kind of explanation. Um, so, if the question is, are there mathematical explanations um, in a perfectly reasonable sense of explanation uh, that you know our colleague has uh, developed? It seems to me yes. Um, if the question is are all proofs that are regarded as legitimate explanatory um, 
Well, setting aside cases like non-surveyable cases like the four-color theorem, not, it seems to me, on any ordinary sense of explain, because reductio proofs are are okay. Uh, if, if, oh, yeah, that's an interesting case. And, you want to just briefly say what that is? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the classic case is the, you know, I mean, uh, the classic case to illustrate a reductio proof is the proof that root two is irrational. And, and that's to say that root two can't be written as, as, uh, uh a fraction of integers where the you know the denominator isn't zero, and the way you argue for that, um, uh, or the, anyway the famous proof of that is suppose you can write it that way, and you end up with the result that both p and q sorry so suppose so suppose that you can write r as p over q for some integers p and q q isn't zero. What you end up arguing is that if you could do that, and you suppose also that P and Q are in lowest terms, so they have no common divisors other than one. So the, the way you argue is, suppose you can do that, well, what you end up with is the conclusion that both P and Q are even. But if they're both even, they, they're not in lowest terms. So, it's a, so, so you end up contradicting... Because they're both divisible by two. What's that? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So you end up contradicting the assumption that that root two can be written as p over q and where those are lowest terms now the, all that shows you is that the assumption some assumption has to be wrong and the way you set it up is is supposed to compel you to say that the the assumption that root two is irrational is wrong can be written that way or sorry is rational is wrong but it doesn't I mean, in an ordinary sense, it seems to me like no one would say that was an explanatory proof. You just know that something went wrong, but you kind of don't know what. Um, so insofar as reductio proofs are legit, um, at least typically I would think of those as not explanatory in an ordinary sense of explanatory. But again, the word explanation, I don't want to do natural language semantics on explanation. It seems like in different circumstances, you want different things. Um, you want different kinds of insight. And certainly sometimes I think that reductio proofs can be insightful in the requisite way. Um, but but no, I, if the question is, is anything that's regarded as a proof setting aside the kind of four-color non-surveyable cases explanatory? In an ordinary sense of explanatory, I would say no, I mean, you know, because of reductio proofs, among other things. Okay. Interesting. And then, so the other side of the coin again, was that a proof conclusively establishes its conclusion. And this uh, notion somehow hinges on rigor, which we've you you looked you looked askance. I wasn't sure if you were disagreeing with me. No, um, no. I mean, right. There's a sense of corresponding okay. to formal validity, which corresponds to uh, okay. Yeah, and this sort of leads me to calculus, and because calculus was first um, formulated without anything like the rigorous foundations, it received in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could say a bit about how calculus w came to be in this non-rigorous sense, and then 
maybe we could talk a bit about Berkeley's criticisms of it because they're so biting. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> again, so I'm no historian, so you should talk to historians if you if you want something competent on on Berkeley and the the exchange. With that caveat, <laughs> um, but but before I we talk about that, maybe I just want to say though something that that we didn't get to, which strikes me as very important, which is that um, the the idea that even formal provability corresponds to something like certifiability or guaranteeing the truth, assuming the premises, that strikes me as a fantasy. Um, and this strikes me as exactly one of the places where there's a sort of mythical mathematics, and then there's the math that, um, that it, you know, when you look under the hood philosophically is, is the real life thing. And unfortunately the real life thing just doesn't live up to the, the myth. And, and the reason is simply that even if you knew that an argument was formally valid, so let's take an argument that's checked by a computer, you know, um, there's of course two, two ways that you can worry about that three ways actually you can worry about that argument the first is of course you can worry about the axioms and this is exactly what people did worry about a lot at the turn of the 20th century are impredicative axioms okay axioms which make crucial you know definitions which make crucial reference to the kind of thing to be defined in in them um are uh you know are 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 uncountable totalities clear in the way that countable totalities are? Um, uh, Is that an issue of axioms? Well, I mean, if, if you have the axiom of infinity, you're assuming the existence of an infinite set, not just infinitely many things. And, you know, and, and finitists, not ultra finitists, think that that's not a clear idea. Like a completed infinity is not a clear idea. Once you have the axiom of infinity, then you take the power set and, you know, you'll have uncountable totalities. Yeah. Um, okay. But, uh, but right, like radical predicativists like Vile or um, Pfefferman, uh, you know, they think the natural number structure is clear, but, but they think that, um, you know, uh, that as soon as you start talking about things like the continuum, that's not clear. So you, you want to be able to talk about infinitely many things as in arithmetic where you quantify over infinitely many things but it's different to say you can talk about that set and look at that as an object in its own right and um so anyway the point is there's one 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 just source of skepticism is of course that you know if there are infinitely many prime numbers if you prove that validly from say the piano axioms there's the question of are the piano axioms true you only prove that there are infinitely many prime numbers if there are if the piano axioms are true. You might say you at least prove the conditional if insert the finite subset of piano axioms that you used in the proof, then there are infinitely many prime numbers. Okay, fine, you can do that in any area though. You know, like if some theory of astrology is true, let's regiment it, let's axiomatize it, then you know, you've got bad luck coming or something. Um, so, so if math is actually sticking its neck right. out and saying anything besides here's what follows from what, um, uh, then you got to worry about the status of the axioms. But even if you want to say, no, math doesn't even need to worry about what, follow, what, what, um, about the axioms, it's not sticking its neck out. It's just right. Not so, so somebody, I'll pretend to be Girdle for a moment. So if somebody like Girdle might say that some axioms like 
the axiom of pair, for instance, just uh, press themselves upon us as true. And that it, because of our mathematical intuition, that's uh, sufficient that we can take some axioms as just true. And we don't need to question them any right. further. But then you're saying, okay, we'll grant you that. <laughs> then we'll move on to the next, the next, uh, the next um, issue in this. Well, no, no, I was saying, I was saying, suppose that you agree that the objections that I just raised to the okay. idea that, um, math ever certifies the truth of its conclusion uh, because it never certifies the truth of the axioms beyond reason, beyond all doubt. I mean, there are still debates to this day about the axioms of large cardinals, the axioms of ZFC, including choice, the axioms of foundation, the axioms of replacement, um, the axioms of power set. And even I mentioned piano arithmetic, where you could carry out the proof that there are infinitely many prime numbers. You know, there's a famous book by Edward Nelson that begins um, you know, I reject the all instances of induction because uh, it's circular. A number is defined as an object satisfying every inductive formula. So is that the predicative? Yeah, predicative arithmetic is the book. And now you might, okay, you might say he's an outlier or whatever, but, but the point is this is just philosophy. I mean, now we're just having a debate that, you know, is never going to be settled once and for all. You can do poll numbers and you can say that, uh, look, Edward Nelson was a heretic and, you know, Normal people don't think this, but he probably thought about the issue a lot more than most people who use the piano axiom. So it's it's not very satisfying to be like Timothy Williamson's view about knowledge, you know, has been proved false because 99% of people don't think that E equals K, you know, I mean, okay. But so anyway, one issue is just that if you want some kind of certitude that goes beyond just poll numbers and philosophical agreement among most, then one problem with mathematical proofs is that, you're, at least to date, we're, we have not gotten that with the axioms. Most people, of course, don't care about the axioms. Most people wouldn't even be able to name what they are. That's not a normal mathematical activity. But among those who do, it's just not true that everybody agrees on the axioms. Okay. But suppose somebody were to say now, okay, but I don't care about the axioms. Give me a break. This is like metaphysics. I'm telling you what follows from the axioms. Well, strictly speaking, first of all, you wouldn't want to do that because claims about what follows from what are really arithmetic claims, specifically claims about what doesn't follow from what are really arithmetic claims. And it's consistent to say false things about that by good old second incompleteness theorem if arithmetic is consistent. So, okay, so let's say what, what I really mean is they're conditionals. If this, then that. And if you can prove the thing, then that conditional turns out to be a logical truth. Okay, but now we get to the debates about logic. And the fact is, once again, just as a matter of sociology, it's not even true that all parties who think about these things, which, of course, is a tiny minority of people in the world. There's not, the, right. you know, no department, even in philosophy, is desperate to hire more people to think about which is the right logic. Those are not, um, <laughs> those are, you know, luxury items, even in philosophy for a philosophy department. So definitely not in the matter. Columbia wanted you. What's that? Well, Columbia wanted you. Uh, or, or I forced their hand somehow or something. Yeah, it's not really clear why I'm employed. But, mm -hmm. um, here we are. Uh, anyway, so um, so so definitely not in the math department. You're, you know, it's going to be very hard to get a job if, if, if you, you know, part of your uh, part of your work is defending intuitionistic logic or something or a large part of it. So so the numbers of people who even are aware of these issues is vanishingly small. But 
among those who care and know about them, it's just not true. There's agreement over what the right logic is or even what that question means. And so hence what counts is even, a, you know, a, a conditional we should stand by of the form, if these axioms, then this theorem. Like if finite subset of piano axioms, then there are infinitely many prime numbers. Finally, and I promise this is the end of the monologue, there's, course, like the al there's always room for doubt just about the reasoning, even if you have no doubts about the logic or the axioms, because typically the reasoning is very involved and you can make a mistake. You know, maybe you're sleep deprived. Maybe you uh, messed up the on this one. What's that? That's what the computers are for. Now, and, well, maybe the, computers we go full were, circle. maybe the computers were programmed with an error. I mean, what I'm saying is if mm -hmm. it, th there's this ideal that math somehow avoids, you know, all philosophical doubt. Math is the land of certainty. Math is that thing that Descartes was, ser was searching for when he said, what can't I doubt? And in my view, that there is no such land. <laughs> you know, you don't have to face up to it. You don't ever have to become, you don't have to ever, re, you don't have to, uh, you know, ever see how the sausage is made. And then, you know, forever. And, you you know, you're stuck with philosophy and philosophical words. You don't have to do that. It might, maybe that's the better way to live for most people, but it's just false that there's any view that is quarantined from the philosophical debates in my view. And so, so if one is trying to motivate the idea that um, that you know we should seek proofs in math which at least have a formal surrogate because those certify and and establish and end end all questions about the validity of the argument. That strikes me as a misguided reason because there's no, no nothing that does that. And just the final thing I'll say, sorry, I said it, it would be the final, but this is actually, this is a PS. PS, if it occurred to you to say, no, 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 but we can at least establish the following. The following argument is valid in a logic. <laughs> like, you know, the following, you know, the, um, if classical logic is right, then if the, then it follows from the piano axioms that there are infinitely prime numbers or something like that. Unfortunately, even what follows from what in a logic is lo background logic dependent. It's meta theory dependent. So it's 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 turtles all the way down. You know, I mean, could you explain that though very briefly? Yeah, I mean, it's the the concrete cases are 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 kind of technical to 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 show, and I'd have to introduce like the easiest cases. But are, uh, involve pair. But are you like referring to the inference rules that sort of thing in the meta theory? Yeah. So, um, so, okay. so here's the, the basic point is that what follows from what is a claim that you make from some perspective where you help yourselves to certain rules of inference and not others. And the point is that what inference rules you regard as legitimate in reasoning about what follows from what in a logic will depend on what will depend on the, the conclusion you arrive at about what follows from what in that logic. For example, if your meta theory is yeah. paraconsistent, you can have different answers to the question than if it's classical. Um, and, yeah. and actually a great, a great, some really nice illustrations of this are in Stuart Shapiro's book, varieties of logic. I forget what chapter, but he has a chapter specifically on this meta theory dependence. So, 
So that was just one long diatribe saying that the second motivation and the second notion of proof, I actually think, turned out to be just hopeless. Like it begins with Aristotle, the idea that, you know, maybe proof is something where we can all agree to it without agreeing on the meanings of words, uh, you know, without like it's just something you can check by looking at the forms of strings of symbols or something. And unfortunately, I think that turned out just to be something that never could you know, it, it never transpires. Sociologically, there's a lot of agreement. But if you want something that, like, you know, avoids all philosophical doubt in the kind of way that Descartes was looking for, and the way that we still talk often about mathematical proof, that doesn't exist in my view. Okay, so if this second branch of the proof is of, not of the proof, but um, of reasons for having proofs that they conclusively yes. prove certain things is a fantasy then why rigorize the calculus why was that so important but yeah so again bracketing to use your word and your caveat bracketing the fact that you're not a historian though you do a pretty good job wearing the historian hat how did <laughs> I'm so well it's easy as, as somebody who's not a historian when you say things confidently i believe you so maybe you are just really really butchering everything i had a i did a, a podcast with ct win uh about a week ago and we talked about how how you should go about selecting experts it's an epistemic problem yeah, yeah. how you go about selecting experts in areas in which you're not an expert yourself yeah, yeah. because you can't evaluate uh, whether or not they're right yeah. on certain things. But so anyway, uh, the calculus, yeah. uh, take it from here, uh, historian. Justin. Right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm going to give this part of the lecture in Latin. Um, no, but uh, so, um, so, right. So, you know, Newton and Leibniz, uh, baby's first history of calculus here. Newton and Leibniz famously came up with the calculus independently of each other, and, and their approaches were slightly different. But both of them, both of the approaches involved something uh, like what we today call infinitesimals, which are um, quantities that are smaller than any finite number, but not zero. And this is, in fact, by the way, I mean, if you're not a math major or, you know, philosophy philosopher who's interested in this kind of stuff, um, this is, by the way, still how you teach calculus to like physics students. I mean, if you look at a typical physics book and oh, really? mathematical methods for physics, physicists, those books are not rigorous about the typically about the epsilon delta definition of, of you know, limits and, and, the, and the derivative and stuff. Um, so what you talk about. I get the names Kiesler and Kreisel confused, but I think it's uh, Kiesler who was a mathematical logician. Right. Well, maybe they were both mathematical logicians. Both but were. anyways, um, Kiesler was so taken by Abraham Robinson's um, yeah. non-standard analysis that he tried to turn non-standard analysis into a pedagogical tool because he thought that in infinitesimals were so much more yeah. intuitive. So he would... Uh, teach he has a textbook for beginners for calculus that is non-standard analysis based that's interesting uh, rather than yeah Heim had told me but anyway yeah. Heim had told me about this uh about his passion for this i didn't know he wrote a textbook that's interesting um yeah but yeah so i mean you know for ordinary purposes you, you know unless you're interested in in um 
you know, foundations or, or, or math for its own sake, it's perfectly fine to say something like, um, what's the derivative um, at a point? It's just the slope um, as the difference uh, between x values goes to, um, goes to zero, gets, gets arbitrarily close. And you leave it at that. What does it mean to go to zero and all that? And you just leave it at that. Um, or when you say that the X values are infinitely close or something like that. I mean, it's a perfectly standard thing to do. Um, uh, and, and in my experience, reading physics books anyway, it's completely standard to talk that way in differential geometry and, you know, um, in, in, uh, in all sorts of mathematical fields where people aren't worried about foundations. But but there are real questions about that argument. And um, uh, Bishop Barclay, um, who was a philosopher um, uh, in what was this? I guess this was the 17th and 18th century, um, who, you know, his, his, um, his really, you know, his, his real claim. Uh, yeah, George Berkeley. Uh, 1685 to 1753. Yeah, yeah. So, but so, okay. So Leibniz and, and Newton, even though they, they did it independently, they both had a very <clears throat> intuitive conception of the calculus that employed the, this notion of infinitesimals. Yeah, that, that employed, that employed um, something like a notion of infinitesimals or infinitely close or going to zero or something like that without telling us what that really meant, you know? Um, and, and, uh, and so, so in, I, I can't remember the date of the pamphlet, uh, of, of Barclays, but, um, I think it was the early 18th century that he published this. Um, uh, he, uh, the analyst, yeah, the analyst. 1735. Okay. So, um, so far so good. Um, so Barclay, whose who's real claim to fame has nothing to do with math. He's famous because he, he gave a really penetrating criticism of the early modern uh, philosopher's distinction between primary and secondary qualities and argued on that basis, um, and among other things, for what, what's today called idealism, which um, uh, doesn't mean like, you know, everything's going to work out great. It means that everything is somehow mind-dependent or sort of the world of physical objects are actually mental entities and all that exists is, is mental entities. It's, it's opposite of, of course, the idea that everything is physical um, and that even- mental... Which seems to be experiencing a revival these days. Did you say- At least in Columbia's philosophy department and with, with applicants. Idealism? Yeah, well, it seems like so many people are writing on German idealism these oh, days. Oh, okay, right, yeah. yeah. So that's possible, yeah. Well, so anyway, so that's his claim to fame. I mean, he's, he was a philosopher. He was a theologian. He wasn't a mathematician, though. He did work in um, he did some work in the sciences and and was taken very seriously. Uh, uh, his critique was taken very seriously. Um, and uh, and what he did was sort of make this kind of satirical pamphlet. Um, and the point of the pamphlet was not sort of why we still read it today, but the point of the pamphlet was he was, a, again, a philosopher and a theologian, a believing theologian. And, um, th you know, this, the, the scientific revolution had taken off and this was the era where, you know, there, there started to emerge a culture 
um, among you know scientifically minded thinkers that somehow um, you know uh, real uh, knowledge is founded on if not observation and experiment because some of these people were what we today call rationalists at least something like you know mathematical science or something like that and and meanwhile debates about theology are just kind of you know like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and there's no way to confirm them or refute them and they're often incoherent and all these things and Barclay, who was a believing theologian but also a very smart guy um made a very funny pamphlet basically arguing that if you think debates about god for example are incoherent or you know sort of um, the, 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 the logical, um, uh, like, um, what's the word sort of the, you know, aren't, aren't sufficiently careful logically or something. Um, let's look closely at what grounds your whole physical science. Those of you who are making this criticism, which wasn't Newton, by the way, who was a believer in God. He was a, he was a, he was a, um, you know, very seriously theological character, but, um, and neither was Leibniz. Um, but, uh, but, but, but people sort of on behalf of the Newtonian physics were saying this. And, and so he just submitted the, 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 the kind of reasoning that does show up very explicitly in Newton's work and Leibniz's work to critical scrutiny. And, and he made a perfectly legitimate point. I mean, the way that one normally, presents these kinds of arguments is that um, you figure out the slope. Um, the, so to tr compute the derivative at a point, you figure out the slope by letting the difference between uh, the value of F um, at X and the value of F at X plus DX be very small but not zero because mm -hmm. if it were zero, you'd be end up dividing by, by, um, by zero. Right. Um, which is undefined. So you let it be very small, but, and you then compute the slope, but then you let the difference go to zero or be zero at the end. Cause you don't, you want to, you want to know the exact slope at the point. And if you were to let the distance be finite between X and X, you know, X plus DX, uh, you wouldn't get that. You just get another slope. You'd get a secant uh, uh, line. So, um, so, so we've just submitted very carefully. And he said, "Look, is the is dx? He wasn't called dx. I think it was O in in um, in in Newton's work. He had this term called the fluxion. What? Yeah, in, in, uh, Newton went through phases, but but one of his phases involved the notion of a fluxion, and I think that." Um, the term he used for this difference was O and, um, and, 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 you know, Berkeley, Berkeley just asked the reasonable question, look, is O zero or not? You can't change the meaning of O in the middle of an argument. That's what's called um, an equivocation. <laughs> you know, um, an argument can't be valid if it means one thing in the premise and something else in the conclusion. So is O zero or not? You can have it either way. The problem is neither way gives you the result you want. If it's zero, then you're dividing by zero and the thing doesn't make any sense. If it's not zero, then you don't get the tangent, you get a secant. You don't get the actual slope at a point. So this was just like a very good point. And by the way, most calculus, many calculus books still to this day 
sort of begin by, by you know, we had this idea of the calculus and then Barclay pointed out, like, this really doesn't make a lot of sense. And so then people like Koshi and Bayer, Strauss and Balzano, uh, who's also... The ghost of a... The ghost of a departed quantity. Yes, exactly. He called them the... <laughs> I think the, the pamphlet finishes with like, what could these be but the ghost of the departed quantities, these, these fluxions or these. Um, and uh, look, his, uh, in my view, his point was totally good. And I think this is the standard view of both historians and mathematicians. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't until the 19th century that it was really remedied in terms of the epsilon delta definition of the limit. And, um, and, uh, you know, this is an example of something that periodically happens in the history of math. People who sort of are, I mean, he was kind of making a cheat, you know, the, the pamphlet is actually very funny. Um, uh, but um, so he was sort of, he was sort of chiding um, these, these uh, scientific uh, mechanists who, you know, like to make fun of theologians. But but the, the substantive point was very serious, and this is something that happens periodically. People who call them philosophers, call them uh, sticklers, it doesn't matter. They worry about the, the, the foundations. And, of course, most people don't care about the foundations. You know, I, I just said still to this day, most physics books don't get into the epsilon-delta definition of, of the limit. Um, so you can, you can sort of get by for a long time without worrying about foundations. But... It ends up mattering uh, for a systematic um, edifice. It matters for a systematic theory. And so you have people like, you know, Barclay, you have people like Russell, who came up with Russell's paradox, you know, um, uh, uh, who, who come up with these issues that seem peripheral to any mainstream concern. I mean, so take the Russell's paradox. Russell said, under what conditions can you collect sets? Because sets had take, set theory had taken on a foundational role at the turn of the 20th century. And it became what was seen as like maybe the clearest concept we have and we should build math out of set theory. And under what conditions can you collect sets? And here's the obvious thought. Whenever you have a predicate, like a well-formed predicate, if you have a condition, take the things that satisfy it. And if the condition mm -hmm. is like something like being not self-identical, no problem. In that case, the set is the empty set. But that, and that's exactly what Frege thought in his famous, uh, attempt to found to, to, to found math on logic in his sense. Um, and, and Russell said, but that can't be right because consider the predicate of not containing yourself and now consider the set of all sets that don't contain themselves. Does it contain itself or not? And if it does, it doesn't. And if it doesn't, then it does. So something needs to give. And most people would say, Oh, come on, who cares about that weird, you know, uh, you know, uh, contrived predicate. But if you don't know when you can form something that's like a well-formed, if you don't know when something will give you a set in general, you don't know if you're going to end up running into contradictions, totally ordinary situation. And this is why people like Hilbert took these kinds of paradoxes so seriously. And this is why we ended up, you know, eventually arriving at what somebody might call a pretty gerrymandered set of axioms, because at least they look like they won't give you inconsistency. Um, uh, but that's another type of Berkeley, Berkeley case. I mean, Russell wasn't primarily a mathematician. You know, he's a philosopher who wrote something like about 100 books on, like, you know, marriage and the mind-body problem. And he wrote the Einstein-Russell Manifesto about nuclear war, war or nuclear arms and so on. Um, but that problem 
trickles down and has immense implications for what math becomes, what, what's regarded as the standard of rigor, what are taken to be the basic principles. And I think that's very much what happened with the Barclay case. Barclay wasn't a mathematician, um, but he had a point. And I think anyone who studies it carefully, you know, has got to grant him the point. And, and it turned out not to be trivial to respond to that point. So that's, that's the cartoon history from the non-historian. So he had a point. There were serious problems uh, conceptually with the calculus as developed by Newton and Leibniz. But then I go back to your distinction between the two roles for proof right. and then the role of rigor. And if providing uh, this... Uh, foundation for the calculus doesn't give us doesn't like conclusively settle the question right. of whether or not we have a legitimate uh, system before us. Uh, why do it at all? Was there a good reason yeah, to so, rigorize the calculus? So here, I think this the answer to this is just what we say on the first day of epistemology class when when you know often. Often, um, you know, often people, the first thing that's assigned is Descartes, and he thought about what he can't doubt, what he can be certain of. And um, most people agree that, you know, if you don't invoke God in a circular way, you really can't be certain of anything. He probably is even wrong that he can be certain that there is thinking or I exist or something like that. But it's, it's to throw the baby out with the bathwater or the bathwater, whatever, um, uh, to say, therefore, I can't know anything. Knowledge doesn't require certainty, and it's not an either-or proposition. And just because the, you know, the, the ideal of, of somehow certifying uh, proofs in this just beyond all doubt um, kind of way is, it seems to me, a fiction, that doesn't mean that some things aren't way more better supported than others. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, here's two propositions. The number of stars is even, and uh, there is a computer before me. And I think those are on quite different footing. And, and so it certainly makes sense to try to increase your rational confidence in any theory you want to uh, develop and um, to try to establish as much evidence as you can for it. And, and, um, and if, for example, the foundations of the theory just blatantly involve a equivocation or are explicitly contradictory, that's bad news. And you should try to resolve that. But that doesn't mean that the result of the exercise is certain. It just means it's on a much better footing than the original. So I'm not against rigor or something. I just don't think it, it gives you what sometimes, um, I, I, I wouldn't even want to say sometimes, very often it's advertised to give it doesn't give you certainty. It doesn't give you, um, you know, something that uh, there could be no reasonable suspicion of or anything like that. It, it, but it, but it might well give you very good reason to believe. In fact, I think that's the case. I also see a, a little bit of a parallel between Eudoxus's proportions and our real numbers, in that I wonder whether it's really fair to say that what Cauchy and Weierstrass, Weierstrass did 
was really providing a foundation for uh, Newton's and Leibniz's calculus because there's no there are no infinitesimals there, whereas right. there are infinitesimals in Abraham Robinson's, which came right. like seventy or eighty years later, where they're the the uh, reciprocal of hyper integers. Right. I mean, this is this is it seems to me one of the um, liabilities of the kind of view that I think you attributed to Heim that that we never give up mathematical posits in the way that we gave up the ether or um, or uh, the planet Vulcan or something. Um, uh, math, it seems to me, is largely about reinterpreting uh, old old language in new terms. So it's not anyway. It, it's 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 uh, it's it's really hard to make the case, for example, that we've just learned a whole lot more about the numbers of the Greeks. The numbers of the Greeks were expressed with lines, and irrational numbers was a contradiction in terms. So, um, mm -hmm. what's true is we can reinterpret what they did um, as, yeah. as as claims about numbers in our sense. Um, but you don't want to trivialize the thesis that math is cumulative and we never throw anything out because of course, if you ever have a consistent theory, I mean, here's a basic meta theory of first order logic. If you ever have a consistent theory, you can always make it come out true by reinterpreting it. That's just to say that every consistent theory has a model, which is what's known as the completeness theorem. So mm -hmm. if you're allowed to just reinterpret any theory, physical, ethical, you know, um, philosophical, and it's not just overtly contradictory in the formal sense, you can make it come out true. Now it might mm -hmm. be some there, there might be something deep about the fact that that's all we seem to care about in the math case. We don't seem to care about what it's sort of really about. Um, but but that sort of is comparing apples to oranges at this point. When you say is math like physics? Are there revolutions, or do we just learn more about the same thing? You know, Kuhn, Kuhn worried that the notion of mass changed b between Newtonian and, and relativistic mechanics. So we didn't learn more about mass. And most people say, oh, give me a break. That's an overstatement stuff. And, but, but you know, the, the hypothesis about math would be that nothing like that has transpired. We just learned more about the same old objects. Sometimes we added objects, but we never threw them out. But if you're so wildly reinterpreting things um, through successive revolutions, not to mention changes of standards of rigor and method and so forth, not to, not to mention changes in, in priorities, like what counts as an interesting question, like doubling the square uh, using, you know, with, with um, sorry, doubling the cube using um, uh, uh, compass and straight edge or something. I mean, like, you know, with these certain uh, restrictions on you, those are not the kinds of questions people care about today. So there's so many ways in which math, like everything else, as far as I know, uh, has changed you don't want a tr you don't want the, the thesis that that it's somehow special and cumulative to be trivial just because you can always reinterpret what people did in the past so that it comes out true today in your language. I mean, sure, that's that's fair, but you could do that anywhere. So, what then is really the alternative way to answering the question what is mathematics if you don't if you aren't just going to point to sociological facts or historical facts yeah i mean 
it's not that I think that that's the wrong approach to the question. It's that I guess I think the question, if really seen as a factual question, is is a misconceived question. I mean, it's it's you know it's um, I don't think there's some deep essence to math. I think that math is um, like most things, different moments in what we call math bear family resemblance to each other. And it's a kind of practical question whether to categorize them all as the same or different. I mean, whether to call what the Egyptians were doing the same thing as what, um, you know, contemporary algebraic geometers do strikes me as just there's no deep answer to that. It's how you want to categorize. There's dramatic differences between what they were doing. Totally different priorities, totally different methods, totally different concepts. Is it the same? I don't think that that's like the question of whether there are gravitons, you know, um, I don't think, mm-hmm. I don't think that. The, so, so my own view, roughly speaking, even though I just co-taught a class with the title, what is math is that that question is misconceived if it's really a factual question and the right thing to do in place of ask that question is just to explore similarities and differences between what we call math uh, in a, say, history of math book um, uh, today versus in the past, across cultures, across even decades in the 20th century and the 21st century. And it's it's interesting and, and telling, I think, to speculate about what it's going to be using the ordinary vocabulary um, with the increasing role of, of uh you know, AI and, um, and, and machines to, to both assist mathematicians in proving theorems and to actually discover proofs of theorems. And, uh, so, so that's my, that's my, I don't think that there's a better way to answer the factual question, what is math than just something like analyze the concept of math, but I don't think you should analyze the concept of math. I think that you should set that question aside and just explore similarities and differences between traditions that typically are called mathematical. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to Heim in the sense, at least that I want to find something mm-hmm. unifying yeah. about all of mathematics, but the biggest problem I have with this account, or it could just be uh, with his way of putting it, and I've raised this with him before, is that it just seems to, or he at least, it doesn't want to give answers or ways of answering certain questions that are still very important to us, like what mathematical objects are. I mean, that's something people have been talking about for 2,000 years, and I think it's an important question, even if the answer is there are none. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Or how we know about mathematics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these these are questions that you don't get. Well, well, maybe you could say oh, we know about mathematics because we read a textbook, but that doesn't really uh, answer the interesting philosophical yeah. question. It, so how do you how do you go about answering those sorts of questions if you're not going to be uh, using the history sociology practice route? Oh well, well there I think you just clarify what your target is. And, and in fact, Michael Harris, my, our colleague, Michael Harris, um, uh, in a discussion I had with him or have had with him a couple discussions where he, 
he talks about the philosopher's math versus, you know, the mathematician's math versus the man on the street's math or whatever. And I mean, his point is that, um, the, one's concept of math, it does seem really depends on who you are. Uh, you know, a contemporary algebraic topologist concept of math is not the logician's concept of math generally, which is not the practice, not the actual, what is it, actuary, actual, actuary, uh, the actuary's concept of math, um, and so on. So, um, so what you can ask is concrete questions like, how do we know if we do? the axioms of first order Zermelo-Frankel set theory, how do we know that uh, uh, a classically valid proof is classically valid? How do we know that classical logic is the right logic? That's not going to be, though, like it would be false advertising to say that's the question of how we know math, because there's so many different things that are math, most of which are not how we know ZFC or things that follow from ZFC in a formal system. So that's kind of the question, how do we know philosopher's math, to use Michael Harris's terminology? That's the kind of question. Um, but then I think you can ask, you know, also questions, how do we know math in the, in the much more ordinary sense of, of math that like the Egypt, where the Egyptians were, you know, uh, making use of something that we might today in a different context characterize as empirical science for purposes of agriculture. How do you know that? And you can ask that question. Um, you know, how do you know, uh, how, do, how, how do contemporary number theorists working on the Langlands program, you know, know the theorems that they establish uh, by basically introducing, ex, you know, super loaded concepts that it takes forever just to understand what the concepts are. Um, and they don't use formal proofs. They probably haven't, many of them, I bet, haven't taken a class in logic or would even be able to tell you what, a, you know, a Hilbert system for proof system is, much less worry about the axioms of ZS. How do you know that? How do they know? So there's just lots of different questions. And I think part of the answer is, as always, going to involve, you know, psychology and our best science of the brain and the mind. But But that's not going to settle anything normative about sort of when your belief is justified. Um, and so part of the answer is also going to involve basically questions of policy, intellectual policy, and um, discussions of, you know, what makes a certain kind of intellectual state reasonable? Uh, and, and how does that differ from the state, for example, I'm in with respect to the proposition that the number of stars is even, where it would be unreasonable for me to take a stand on that question. So do you find, and this is a big question, that the Benassaraf mm -hmm. field problem has been sort of answered, like answered to your satisfaction? I wouldn't want to say that. What I'd say is that I think a lot of progress has been made on it. And um... Well, you just recently wrote a, a book on it, right? It, or a it, wasn't, mini book. it wasn't on just on that, but right. I mo wrote a book it, on, okay. on mathematical knowledge and, and what I call pluralism about, about math and its relevance to philosophical areas more generally. Um, and could you say what the, the problem is? Yeah, sure. And so, um, whether it's still problematic for you. Yeah. So, so look, I think that there's a lot of distracting ways to put the problem. Uh, and I don't, I want to be careful not to do this. So, so, but let me just advertise what those are. Some of those which, where I think you really just missed the point and, and you end up 
in a, it, you might end up dismissing the problem as as silly because you don't understand what the real issue is. So here's an example of a silly way to put the problem. Math is about platonic objects. And how could we ever know anything about platonic objects? They're not things with mass energy or quantum number and so on. What could, the kind of physical interactions could our nervous systems have with them? And, you know, somebody's going to respond to that by saying, well, then I don't think math is about platonic objects, you know? I mean, so, um, uh, so that's not the useful way to put, put the point. The useful way to put the point is here's just the following correlation that anyone who's non-skeptical about math accepts. In general, if the mathematical community claims to prove that P, P. Um, and here's something else, though, that people tend to accept. Whether P is true for a typical mathematical theorem, like, like let's stick with Euclid's theorem because it's simple. There are infinitely many prime numbers, okay? Um, whether that's the case doesn't seem to be up to us. We don't seem to get to make it the case that there are or aren't. We can change our conventions and mean different things by the same words, but that won't change the thing that we actually say presently with their infinitely many prime numbers. So, okay, you got two things. You got, you got the fact that there's infinitely many prime numbers. You got P, I'm not reifying fact here. I'm just using that as another, I'm just, here's two things. There are infinitely many prime numbers. Here's another thing. Mathematicians and people actually who have taken basic math think there are infinitely many prime numbers. Question, what explains that correlation? And that question is a good question. I mean, in the, in the physical case, like here's, here's another fact. Things accelerate down to the earth at 9.8 meters per second squared. Here's another fact. People believe that things accelerate down to the earth at 9.8 meters per second squared. Okay, why is that? I mean, here's the basic answer to that question. Because they do. And things deflect photons that hit our retinas and stimulate our optic nerves and so forth. Our nervous systems are affected by the actual fact. Okay, is anything like that kind of story, however you think of mathematical um, reality. Maybe it doesn't involve any objects at all, like logic is often thought to involve no objects at all. Is anything like that story going to explain the correlation? It doesn't seem like it. I mean, it, it, it's incredible how, um, how little progress has been made, for example, in the sciences explaining the correlation as opposed to how we came to have the beliefs we have. Cognitive science and, and, and evolutionary psychology and so on are bearing on the question of how it is that we come to have, for example, numerical concepts, how we estimate the size of, of, of collections of things in our environments reliably. Um, okay, but they're saying almost nothing about, yeah, I'm not asking how you have the beliefs you have. How is it that you get that they tend to be right? And not about things in our environments, but things like about prime numbers and infinitely many of them. So there's different things you can say. One thing you could say is, well, you know what, now that I think about it, I don't actually want to say that there are infinitely many prime numbers. Okay, but that's a little tricky because you're up to your ears in statements like that in any regimented physical theory. I mean, what could it mean to say, I believe the Lagrangian density, the standard model, and I believe the field equations of general relativity, and you know, eventually somebody's going to come up with a theory of dark matter and energy. I believe all those things, which is just going to be a bunch of math, basically. But I don't really believe in math. Don't get me wrong. Um, okay, if you want to say that, 
you know, as Quine famously put it, you got to put your money where your mouth is. And that's what somebody like Archie Field tries to do. And, you know, in my view, unfortunately, that that's not going to work out for reasons we can talk about. But but he at least honestly tried to take on the question and didn't just, you know, you know, sort of uh, talk out two sides of his mouth, you know, by saying, I don't believe in math and uh, and um, I'm not a Platonist. You're just calling me a Platonist. And, you know, if you want to say math is like mind dependent and you don't want to say the field equation, the, the facts about, about gravity and the space-time curvature are mind dependent, then you need to figure out how to say stuff about space-time curvature that's true that doesn't involve the math, you know? So it's a little bit, okay. So um, so the Benassaraf problem is basically just to explain that correlation. And I think we have made progress on explaining that correlation, but I don't think the problem is done. In the original formulation of the problem, Benassaraf sort of conflated two issues, but in a way, he was right to conflate them because they're both issues that have to be resolved. The one issue is semantic. How do words get to mean what they do? How do we get to mean finite, for example, by finite when we know that that's not a first order definable concept? And the other issue is assuming the determinacy of our language, how do we get to have reliably true beliefs about whatever we're talking about? Where again, about can make it sound like I mean they're platonic. No, 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 no. I don't mean anything like that. It doesn't need to be about anything in the sense of extra ontology. I just mean that, you know, how does it get to be the case that when I, when I think there are infinite many prime numbers, there are infinitely many prime numbers, even if that doesn't and, really the, and the problem is, yeah. is getting both legs to cohere, right? Because there are theories that do one fine, theories that do the other fine, yeah. but the Holy Grail is one that gets them both well sort of that's how Benassaraf thought of it Benassaraf thought that the way to the way to put the problem is that there's a tension between giving a plausible semantics for mathematical language versus giving a plausible epistemology but what he meant by plausible semantics was um, not something that necessarily resolved the determinacy problem that I just mentioned he just meant like you should be able to give truth conditions of mathematical sentences that cohere with the truth conditions of other sentences of the same surface form. So for example, there are infinitely many prime numbers should have the same truth conditions or analogous truth conditions as like there are infinitely many stars. Um, There should be some stuff and it needs to satisfy the predicate uh, being a star Mm -hmm. uh, or being a number. Um, and his thought there, so Benassaraf was kind of working with the platonic thing because his thought there was, oh, so there's got to be these platonic entities and how would you, but Field, Hartree Field um, in in his book, Realism, Mathematics and Modality, I think nicely um, separated out just the epistemological point, though he, he has a discussion of the semantic point. And I think he does a better job illustrating why it's kind of distracting to um, to put the two problems together and also to think that the problem, the epistemological problem, has much to do with whether or not the semantics is a face value semantics that mirrors the semantics of the rest of language. So I, I won't go on, but just to say that, you know, there are there are accounts advocated by Charles Chahara and Jeffrey Hellman, where math isn't about anything special. It's basically complicated. In the Hellman case, it's basically complicated modal statements. And I yeah, think yeah. where the modal operate, it is possible and it is necessary. And 
and and the modal operator there is taken as a primitive, not analyzed in terms of possible worlds. And I think Field is right to say, okay, but now the question is just how do you know those modal statements? What's the correlation between your judgment that the modal statement holds and the modal fact, where the fact, again, is not an extra thing, but just something I could say. So, so I think that the literature and the problem, we've gotten clearer on what it is, and it's not, I think, quite what Vassaraf formulated. Okay. That was all very helpful. Because uh, I think you know I'm working on yeah. a, a literature review on this, yes. so that was a, a great primer. I'm going to take us in a, a slightly different direction, though okay. we'll get back to the calculus. But I'd really like to talk about Zeno's paradoxes, mm -hmm. particularly uh, because I find them so compelling. Mm -hmm. And I think they're some of the first problems that got me interested in philosophy yeah. to begin with. So maybe, well, there's the Achilles and the tortoise, and then there's the dichotomy, which I talked to Nick Huggett a bit about it, and mm -hmm. I guess just means cutting in half or mm -hmm. cutting in two. Um, interestingly, do you know the er etymology of paradox? No. Okay. It means, well, I'm probably going to get the, the Greek wrong, but para and doxa is against belief. So right. we're taking premises yeah. that we believe, and then the conclusion that comes from, a, mm -hmm. comes from it is, uh, goes against our beliefs. Mm -hmm. But so do you just want to start with the dichotomy as opposed to um, the Achilles and the tortoise, since yeah, they kind of reduce to the dichotomy? The Achilles and the tortoise adds anything really to, um, yeah. to two different versions of, I think what you're, you mean by the dichotomy that, um, so the, the basic, I mean, here's two different versions. Suppose I want to go some unit of length, uh, like a foot or something. seems like I can do it. You know, seems like I can, uh, move. Um, okay. To go that unit of length, I, I need to go half the unit of length and to go, uh, and then I need to go half plus half the half. Um, and then I need to go half plus half the half plus half of the remaining and so on. That's one version. In a way, the more interest, I don't want to say it's more interesting. The, the more striking initially version is to say the same yeah, thing yeah. except- The regressive form. Yeah, it's to say the same thing except do it the other way. So to go, suppose I go unit of length, I need to go half to do that first. So that's prior, logically prior to going the full length. To go half, I need to go half of that. And to get blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Well, that sequence doesn't even have a first member. So there's an right. issue like about even what, like, okay, so here's the big picture. The big picture is Zeno's saying, okay, wait, so to go any finite length, doesn't matter how long, I need to go an infinite sum of finite lengths because any one of those halves is a finite sum. And it goes on forever. There's never a last one. So, you know, on one reading, what he's saying is surely an infinite sum of finite quantities cannot itself be finite. And you can't go an infinite distance. Now, Aristotle responded, oh, but you can go an infinite distance because time has the same structure. And so you have an infinite sum of finite sums to go the the distance. So there's no problem. 
the right response to that is that just doubles the problem because now how do I manage to traverse that time? Um, uh, so, um, so, so in addition, in the regressive formulation, there's an issue about like, how do I even get started? Cause there's no first, right. there's no sort, sort of first step that that's the wrong way to think about it, of course. So that was the, that was the, that was Zeno's paradox. And, um, you said, we'll get back to the calculus. I mean, the typical calculus student, among other things, they learn about Barclay, maybe if they hear some history, they also learn about Zeno's paradoxes and almost always in that, um, in that little paragraph or, you know, first section or something, it'll say something like, and that problem wasn't even solved until the calculus, but it's, I think it's a good question whether it was solved, if there's a problem at all. So it, well, the the progressive and the regressive form raise slightly different questions, but the progressive one, at least, I mean, the intuition is that we can't complete an infinite amount of tasks in a finite amount of time. Is that? I don't think I would. I wouldn't want to put it in terms of tasks because that invites the question of oh, you're you're individuating tasks in the wrong way. I mean, you, there's only one task okay. or something. Oh yeah, well I think of it as, I think of each like sub interval you have to go through as a task. You don't really you just don't like to phrase it that way. So I think Heim would one of his complaints about Zeno's paradox is that he's sort of loading the dice because um he makes it sound like cuz you can chop the interval up in, in infinitely many pieces there's like infinitely many things you need to do. And I think that you know, that's not where the action is. There's an infinite sum of distances that are each finite that you need to cross. That's true whether or not you have one task or infinitely many tasks. I feel like you're making, no, you're the one making this like a, a verbal issue. Oh, okay. Because to me, I, I, I think, I don't, I don't see it as problematic to say, to, to think of each interval as a, as a task, if we want to use that language. That's totally fine with me. It's just that I don't, I, okay. I don't want to be vulnerable to the criticism. Oh, but that's, a, that's the philosopher's way of talking about tasks. There's only one task and it's to move your foot one step or something. Okay. That's so with, with that aside, then is the the main intu intuition that we're working against in the progressive form is that you have to move an infinite amount of distances or sub intervals in a finite amount of time. Finite distances, I think, is the key point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finite distances, mm -hmm. and does it does it raise any other prima facie questions like right off the bat for you, or um. Well, I mean, as you say, since it's a paradox, that is, since the conclusion is supposed to be unbelievable, that we can't move, I mean, an immediate question is like, what's the culprit? And, um, you know, we have been raised in the post-calculus era where people think that um, the culprit was exactly the assumption that an infinite sum of finite quantities itself can't be finite because we would say that yes it can uh if the series converges but to foreshadow i i, I think that is um an equivocation uh with the word sum because an infinite series is not literally a sum uh it's it's for example uh, depends on the order that sometimes that you put the quantities and it's not literally a sum it's a limit and um 
But anyway, but um, but something else that you might think is is the root of the problem is infinity, right? So so another another worry um, that you might think immediately this suggests is that oh, there's something messed up with the notion of infinity. Um, the result is obviously nuts. So what something went wrong maybe what went wrong is precisely the idea that it makes any sense to infinitely divide um space or time um i should say to his credit zeno considered this possibility and he 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 has another paradox uh um which is supposed to apply to the assumption that the universe that that space is discrete not infinitely divisible yeah well well let's get i want to get to that sure. in a minute in a minute sure um but so so you you don't find the calculus solution compelling well could could you maybe first say how i mean maybe how we're supposed to imagine or understand the way the calculus is working on a physical level because when you just see the the numbers it's all very abstract and it doesn't seem to just answer but how do you do it? How does yeah. Achilles get the one foot or whatever he has to, to do? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I think that's a reasonable, that's a reasonable question. And of course, um, there were some great debates, actually speaking about Ben Asser, Ben Asser was one of the contributors to these debates. There were some great discussions in the mid 20th century, though the philosopher, I can't think of his first name, but his last name is Thompson, I think is the one who um, is generally considered the most sort of penetrating yeah. critic. Um, uh, I'll find his name. Who, who, who basically thought Zeno was right and the issue was infinity and, and what are called super tasks. That is tasks that would involve some infinite process. And he had this great example of like, you know... The lamp. Yeah. Imagine a lamp that, um, you know, at half a second you turn it on at... Uh, half plus a fourth you turn it you turn it off and so on forever after a unit of time is it on or off and this series of course doesn't converge but if infinite processes make sense it seems like there should be a fact of the matter about what the state of the lamp after that um that uh sequence of events now you have to idealize in certain ways um because for example if like literally you're imagining like switching a switch and the switch is the same length, well then that, that, that you need the distance to get smaller and smaller as the time goes on too. Um, and eventually you'll get to the atomic scale. And I mean, you, you can worry about things, but, um, but basically there are, there are super tasks you can come up with that seem paradoxical and don't admit of this kind of, resolution if you think it's a resolution because the series isn't as it is in the Zeno case a geometric series which converges um and uh and so so yeah i i think that these kinds of questions look here's the bigger question here's the bigger question we this is another sort of aspect of just the div- division of cognitive labor um and a result of it uh, that's bad. Um, physicists, even more than mathematicians, are not worried about the foundations of math. 
they're not worried about sort of the philosophical coherence of the basic principles and so on. Now, some mathematicians are, some physicists are, but as a population generally, they're not. And so you take a course in mathematical methods for physicists or something, and you learn the calculus. And as I said before, uh, not even you know, the, the, the calculus as we know it today. You learn a, a sort of fudged version of the calculus, generally. And, you know, you learn some, you learn linear algebra, some group theory. Um, I'm not sure what's totally standard for a, that, a class of that sort, Fourier uh, transformations. Anyway, and then you just get to work using it to compute things, you know? And that toolkit is up to its ears and commitments, like that space is continuous, that, um, you know, that, that super tasks do make sense. And it's easy to, to build the representational apparatus that you bring to the table and that you just inherited as a toolkit to speculations about the thing you're using it to represent. So, for example, I don't think anyone should take too seriously the fact that, for example, space-time is continuous in, in, say, general relativity. I don't think anyone should take that very seriously as a, as a physical hypothesis or something. I mean, it's, really? it's that nobody has come up with a very good way to do general relativity with discrete space-time. And, and, the, and the problem of discrete space-time uh, you know, is closely connected with the problem of quantum gravity. And that's a very difficult technical problem. But um, the point is you, it, you need to be clear about what you're bringing to the table as your tools and reading in to the data from the data. And that's a very hard thing to do when the data is often itself highly mathematical. So, so I think there's concrete cases of this, which I'd love to talk about, but, but we don't need to, but um, where, where it's just really a case of like, if you knew some philosophy or if you knew some logic or if you knew this and vice versa, I mean, the philosophers also will make, you know, confusions and the logicians will make confusions just because they don't know the relevant physics. This is where I think, you know, prime case where discussions among specialists of different kinds would really help just uh, facilitate clarity. So so the Zeno's paradox things, I think that there do remain legitimate doubts about, are you, should we really believe that, that at the fundamental level, um, space-time is, is not just infinitely divisible, but, but say, for example, continuous, and that super tasks are real things, and so forth. Um, I think those are all totally legitimate questions, even though they're 2,500 years old. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, but before we get back to that, I'm going to take you up on your offer of loving to talk about some concrete cases oh, of sure, yeah. confusion that would be ameliorated if the physicists knew some logic yeah. or foundations or something like that. Yeah. So I don't, th this is not meant at all. Okay, well, well, let me, let me add a caveat this time. If you have one that's particularly simple, that somebody who doesn't know a ton of physics like myself oh. could follow. Well, I, yeah, I think you can follow this without knowing tons of physics. I mean, it involves a, some technical math, uh, logic concepts, but, um, but, but no, here's a concrete case. And, and this is nobody's fault. I'm not in any way trying to um, criticize physicists or something. I, I'm ever, we need division of labor. We'd never learn anything because there's just too much. But I think we also need periods where we try to compare notes on different issues. So, 
here's a concrete example. Okay, so here is supposed to be an open physical hypothesis. And in fact, I know many physicists who think that, that it's probably true or see no reason to think it's false. The universe is finite. There are only finitely many things. That certainly seems to be a possibility. If space-time is discrete, for example, then shouldn't it possibly be the case that there are finitely many things? Okay. So you can have theories then with finite models, physical theories with finite, that admit a finite models of the universe. And, you know, I take it that you would want that in, in theorizing about quantum gravity, for example, that, that at least your theory allows for the possibility that the universe is finite. Okay, now here's a tricky, but here's, a, here's an uncomfortable fact. And this is just a fact about in the foundations of, of math and, and philosophy of math. Every theory, as far as we know, needs a meta theory. Why would you need a meta? Sorry, a meta theory is the theory of the theory. It's a, like, for example, it tells you what the theory can and can't prove and things like that. Why would you need that? Well, you need that at least to be able to say, for example, what the theory predicts. If the theory predicts something, if the theory implies something, then it predicts that thing. If it doesn't imply it, then it doesn't predict it in general, if it's sufficiently formalized. Um, okay, well, the meta theory of any theory, even a theory that admits of finite models, is bi-interpretable, mutually interpretable with just arithmetic. Um, that, because the theory is the theory of what's called the strings, um, the strings of symbols. Okay. Yep. Arithmetic has only infinite models. So here is an uncomfortable fact about that. It seems to me people working in foundations of like quantum gravity who really are concerned with, say, the cardinality of the universe and whether it's infinite and stuff should care about. Absent what's known as an ultrafinitistic surrogate for arithmetic, which no one has managed to even coherently say what that would be. Ultrafinitistic mm -hmm. surrogate for arithmetic would, for example, avoid recursive and inductive definitions. Right. Um, so I mentioned Edward Nelson, who is associated with right. finitism. He does not do that. He uses Robinson arithmetic as his base theory. So he kind of, the attitude is kind of like, don't take it too seriously. No one has done mm -hmm. what I'm suggesting would need to be done, as far as I know. So... Either you come up with an ultra-finitistic surrogate for a the the theory of arithmetic, which serves as your meta-theory, or you contradict yourself at the meta-level when you say the universe might be finite. Because no, mm -hmm. it's got to be infinite, because my, my meta-theory about what the theory implies and so forth only has infinite models. This seems to me like a very just clear, clean problem to come up with an ultra-finitistic theory of arithmetic, which is not a problem that should just be of interest to the three people in the world who care, you know, who are skeptical of induction or something um, in, in piano arithmetic. It's a problem that we should care about trying to come up with a unified worldview. You cannot... So why... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Why can't uh, this hypothetical physicist just be sort of an instrumentalist about the infinite in the meta theory? Well, so first of all, it's not the infinite, remember? It's, um, so it's, it's... Well, it's arithmetic. Right, which, which the model theory of it postulates an infinite set, 
But the theory itself just says there are, that, that for any number, there's a greater one, for example. Every natural number. Has okay. So, the, so I don't know what you could mean to say that you can be an instrument. Let's take concrete case again. Um, okay. Here's something. Let, let's suppose I have some physical theory that admits a finite model. I formalize it so it's clear what the theory implies and doesn't imply. Here's a claim about the theory. It implies a contradiction. Okay, if the theory actually doesn't imply a contradiction, that claim is consistent. That's if the theory interprets arithmetic, sorry, if the original theory interprets arithmetic, and you would presumably need it to, to do any interesting physics. Um, that is true only in a model where there's a number after all the finite numbers. It's, it's an infeasibly large number because it's an infinite number. So a model of this witnessing this consistent but presumably false possibility is a model with not just arbitrarily large finite numbers, but a number after all of them. So, um, so if you want to say something like, I don't take... I take an instrumentalist attitude towards towards the, say, infeasibly large natural numbers. I don't know how you can say reasonable things about, for example, there is no natural number. The codes of proof of zero equals one. That You need to say no number is such a number. Like if you want to say the theory is consistent, what does that mean? It means that among all the numbers, none of them codes of proof of zero equals one. You don't just want it to be that none of, say, the numbers that correspond to um, – to sizes that are instanced in the universe codes, of, uh, because maybe if there were one more thing, that would code a proof of zero equals one or something. So um, I don't know how to get rid of talk of arbitrarily large numbers. It's it, now it's true. It's true that when I said that when I said that at the meta level, you need a the theory has only infinite models. I was then talking from the model theoretic perspective, and that's not the perspective of the theory, which is the theory. It talks about all the numbers, but it doesn't talk about models of them. That's another level of infinite commitment. It's a commitment not just to arbitrarily large numbers, but to being able to collect them. And then you could maybe take the power set, for example. Um, but I don't see how you can get rid of talking about arbitrarily large finite numbers if in if we think of meta logic in the way that we do to this day. Okay, no, sure, that that makes more sense, but I'll also have to listen to it again to, to make it make complete sense. So back then to the dichotomy paradox, mm -hmm. I mean, my uh, intuitive, uninformed physical response, uh, physically, uh, yeah. uninformed response is that, okay, well, I really just want to get rid of that assumption that we can infinitely, well, we can just continually cut that interval in half mm -hmm. uh, and create an, in, an infinite amount of sub intervals and consequently then accept uh, an atomistic conception right. of space. But I understand that that, has physical, I mean, physical problems in the sense that 
they like you said people haven't figured out how to do general relativity with discrete space time though that's not quite string theorists yeah, so, right, right. that's not quite what you said well no so the specific difficulty is coming up with quantum general relativity quantizing general relativity which in, okay. requires more you, you need to be able to for example think of that the state of the space-time is in a superposition, for example. I mean, that would be part of the difficulty. Um, uh, so you need to be able to apply the note. If, if, assuming that the, your approach is to apply quantum mechanics to, to gravity rather than to somehow, you know, it, like that's the, no, that's the normal approach to think that there are gravitons. It's fundamentally a quantum uh, theory. Um, the one of the problems there is that, okay, so all of the, all of the obscurity surrounding quantum mechanics then needs to be able to make sense as applied to space time. Like space time can be in superpositions, for example. Well, maybe at the, at the quantum level, we are willing to bite the bullet and accept that things aren't going to behave intuitively. But my understanding is that Zeno foresaw this sort of, objection and came up with or this sort of response and that we reject mm -hmm. the continuity of space right. and posit discrete space and he had another paradox that posed problems for this as well right and what was that one called I think the, it's called the stadium paradox yeah yes the stadium can you explain the stadium and i'm I am going to put up a picture oh, nice. uh, when I when I do the editing. Okay, so sh I should just warn you first of all that I'm going to have to go in about five minutes. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay, but oh no, that that's no problem. Wait, wait, okay. then don't answer that yeah. question. Uh, since I have five minutes, yeah. I'm going to ask you. Okay, last question. Yeah. Ronnie had another question for me to ask <laughs> you. She said, um, "You used to be really into Indian metaphysics." Yeah. And that it shaped your current views. And I don't know Indian metaphysics or uh, furthermore, I don't know what Indian metaphysics she could be referring to. Mm -hmm. So what is she referring to and how does it affect your, your current views? Oh, well, yeah. So no, this is, this is um, I mean, this is just kind of autobiography. So I, um, so yeah, my first, love philosophically i mean was was basically indian philosophy and um and then i was more interested generally in what's today called buddhist philosophy um i had not even read any what's called western philosophy yet um so i took a zillion courses on on all that stuff but that was that was my first year of college and um and there was i went to a really small college where you know, there was only one person associated with a given thing and often no people. And, um, and, uh, so there was one person and I took all the classes he offered. Um, but that was all I could do with, with Indian philosophy. And so when I applied to grad school, there was a real, I felt very torn. I love Indian philosophy and, and, um, and, uh, Buddhist philosophy. Um, but at the time, things have really changed. Uh, now I can s speak from being on hiring committees. At the time, there literally was just, I mean, 
first of all, it would be just about impossible to get a job in a philosophy department getting second of all there was just really like nowhere to go there was there the university of texas austin had one person doing indian philosophy and um that was the only person that i knew of at a at a graduate program except for a program you could pay for in england at the university of liverpool that had just been founded a master's program and i couldn't pay for it so the thing that tugged at my heart was do i go to NYU, which is great for philosophy generally, but it didn't have anyone doing non-Western philosophy. I think maybe it does have people doing that stuff now, but it didn't at the time. And I mean, again, now this is sort of people are realizing we should do this more. But at the time, it was just really, I mean, it was like much worse than saying I do Hegel or something. It was like, you know. um, uh, That's good in some places. uh, Yeah, right. I know. Um, Yeah. or do I go to to Texas Austin, work with basically one person, learn Sanskrit, and so on? And I decided, you know, what I, did, what I decided, and thankfully now I have tenure, so um, one of my uh, long-term hobbies is going to be to dig into that stuff again. But no, I think that um, awesome. I'm no expert. My interest is amateur because I have not, you know, gone beyond what I learned as an undergrad my first year. Um uh, but I've tried to keep up somewhat on it and I'm really glad we hired someone, um, who does it. And, uh, there's a sense in which I agree with my understanding of at least like the Madhyamaka, uh, metaphysics of Nagarjuna, um, uh, to a considerable extent. I also, I, there are also sort of more general features of Indian philosophy that I prefer to Greek philosophy and to Western philosophy in its its priorities, kind of. What it regards as interesting questions, um, I think that it sort of, it's, it speaks to me more. Um, so I'm very glad that that stuff is making its way into contemporary discussions in a way that it had definitely wasn't when I was you know, applying to grad school. So, uh, okay, I could, we sort of got like cut off towards the end, uh, so I didn't get to hear your, your full response, okay. uh, but that's okay because it's still recorded, so I'll be able to hear it afterward. But anyway, um, thanks again, Justin. This one was totally awesome. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me.